You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation. Brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com. And be sure to share. The Second City is a world-famous comedy theater, and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance, and the same practices that have made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard. Vice President of Creative Strategy, Innovation, and Business Development at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, discovering connections, and building a better future. This is getting the yes and. This podcast, which I loved, is with Rajiv Shah, Raj Shah, who is the president of the Rockefeller Foundation. He is a former American government official, physician, and health economist who served as the 16th administrator of the United States Agency for International Development, USAID, from 2010 to 2015. And he's got a great new book. It's called Big Bets, How Large-Scale Change Really Happens. Enjoy the pod. Days can be counted by the money spent. Today was just another better left unsaid. Days can be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow's just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the Rod Shah, welcome to the show. It's great to be with you, Kelly. So I had this great moment of synchronicity a couple of weeks back. I downloaded your book to my Kindle to start reading on a plane trip that I was taking to Seattle because I'd been hired to come speak to a cohort of entrepreneurs that just finished a two-year program for Breakthrough Energies. So that is a group that was founded by Bill Gates in 2015 and aims to accelerate innovation. This is from their website. Uh, uh, aims to accelerate innovation and sustainable energy and in other technologies to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. So I'm reading this book, your book, and I land and I'm like, anyone know Raj Shah? And like, these people love you, just so you know. <laughs> Thank you. So, which was very funny. Uh, so these entrepreneurs were, would be spending the next two days pitching Bill Gates on their ideas. So what I did was help them use improvisation and improvisational practices as a way to practice these skills of their pitch. So part of what I talked about was this idea that, um, you know, it's great that you have a lot of, a lot of successes, uh, but most people are much more interested in your fiascos and the fact that you made it through. So what we know about a lot of comedians, especially stand-up comedians, is often they're teaching the audience how, how to watch them, and they often share struggle, you know? Um, so, so John Mulaney's a drunk, and Pat Oswalt's a schlub, and Amy Schwartz's a slut. I mean, this is like every stand-up does that. And so this idea of what I was trying to get them to tap into is like, what's hard about what you did or what you're trying to do? And sometimes that is a great place to hook someone. And as I'm reading your book, I'm realizing like, man, oh man, this is like one like terrible conflict ever after another. Uh, and, and But you have sort of a relentless optimism. At least that's what's coming through through, through the page. So I'm curious if like, is that you or is that just like, this is what I do because this is what I do? <laughs> you know, it's it's both. It's both okay. me and it's this is what I do. I mean, I think uh, it's not even it's not even what I do. It's what 
what I've seen others do over mm. and over and over again. And when, you know, honestly, I, I write in the book about early life experiences working with a doctor named Dr. Sudarshan in a rainforest in South India. He eradicated leprosy and was tackling hunger and malnutrition. I write about sitting in a conference room with Bill Gates, kind of debating and arguing about what it would take to vaccinate every child in the world. And I write about responding to Haiti earthquake, uh, when in a moment of great moral need, you know, more American families gave to the Haiti earthquake relief than watched the Super Bowl that year. Wow. And, and to me, how, you know, how can you meet a Dr. Sudarshan, see what he does, learn from a Bill Gates about solving problems at scale and see the American people stand for moral justice at, at this very special moment? Uh, and mass and just not be optimistic about who we are going forward. I'm super optimistic because of what I've gotten to see in others. Uh, it's interesting too, because you talk about this, an encounter you had with an individual. I remember when I was uh, younger, my dad hosted uh, a radio show here at, in, in Chicago at WGM radio for like 33 years. And he, he was interviewing Bob Geldof and this was, just oh, yeah. After. yeah. So <laughs> you can imagine like young Kelly was like, I'm going to be Bob <laughs> Geldof because, because of what he, what he was doing. And I think when you have these encounters with individuals and yours, of course, was seeing Nelson Mandela speak in Detroit uh, at the baseball, so the old, old uh, Tiger stadium, right. Um, that, that, that you, you, you can't somehow leave those without a little bit changed. And, and some of that change is like, oh, maybe this is possible. Yeah. I mean, look, Nelson Mandela, 27 years in prison, comes to the United States when he's released. I mean, folks go everywhere in our country. They don't always come to Detroit, Michigan. Right? No. I'm a kid from suburban Detroit, you know, middle class family. And I was just watching all this on TV. He goes to the River Rouge plant. Ford Motor Company, which famously created like totally vertically integrated auto manufacturing, talks to auto workers. Um, and my dad worked at Ford for 30 plus years. He, he goes to Tiger Stadium. Stevie Wonder opens for him. I mean, just how much more Motown can you get? Seriously. And he closes all of his speeches that day with the same refrain. He said to the people of Detroit, I want you to know that the people of South Africa uh, we we respect you, we admire you, but above all, we love you. And I just thought, how do you spend 27 years in a jail cell mm -hmm. and have that ability to come out and share love and compassion? And it just sparked something. You know, I was, I'm not obviously the only person on this planet to be inspired by Nelson Mandela. <laughs> Let's just be clear about that. But it sparks something and it was like, okay, I'll, I'll go be a doctor or an engineer or whatever, you know, I'm supposed to do, but I also want to do something to make the world a better place beyond, beyond that. And, you know, thankfully a few things happened and I had that opportunity. So let's talk about what makes up for a big bet mindset. So when I get brought places or second city brings in facilitators, we're often talking about this yes and mindset, which is about creating from abundance, the fact that you can't be creative if you're in judgment of self and judgment of others. And the yes and opportunity is a, a way for people to simply get everyone on board, get a bunch of ideas. And the more ideas, the better. I mean, like, I think, I think sometimes we falsely believe that, you know, there's one great idea and it's like, that's just like, it's going to descend up upon us or lightning's going to hit and there's no lightning. <laughs> There's like, and I'm sure that's true for you too, in terms of the things you've tried to tackle, which is nothing is easy. 
everything's complicated, context matters. So talk to us a bit about like when you were looking at writing this book, clearly you had like, I've learned a few things about how to take on these, these sort of big audacious goals. Well, my biggest learning is that everything in society encourages us to be incremental or piecemeal in our efforts to do good. We, and, yep. and there is nothing wrong at all with just charitable action, but there is a difference between doing what you can that feels good and actually systematically designing projects, partnerships, initiatives, and movements that can solve some of the toughest social challenges we face. And I didn't invent this. I mean, this is mm-hmm. probably goes all the way back 110 years to the founding of the Rockefeller Foundation by John D. Rockefeller Sr. But I learned it from, from Bill and Melinda Gates when, when they were just saying, okay, we want to, they read an article about 600,000 kids dying of, of a disease called rotavirus. And then they learned in that article that a rotavirus vaccine was coming out, but it was only going to be available in the United States and rich countries. And all the deaths were in lower income countries. And they were like, that just doesn't make sense. How do we actually solve for all this unnecessary child death? And, and so the task became, we're not going to do something incremental. The goal here is it may take decades, but the goal is we want to solve for unnecessary vaccine preventable childhood mortality at scale. And, uh, and, and I learned that methodology from there. And money was not going to do that alone. I think for a lot of people, they just assume if you throw enough cash at it, but it's not so much about the cash as it is the cash in the right hands with the right ideas. Yeah. It's, it's really not about the money. I mean, there's almost always a need for more resources without Mm -hmm. question but, you know, in the vaccine example, you know, we had to really study why was the world not even manufacturing large volume, low cost product that could be affordable to lower income countries. And it had to do with some regulatory changes from years prior and a bifurcation of the global supply and demand markets for vaccines and, you know, things that would feel fairly complex. But once we studied it and we're like, OK, we have to reshape the global vaccine industry while scaling up the level of ambition in about 70 countries around the world, we actually designed an instrument to do that. We, we, oh. we created something called an immunization bond or the International Finance Facility for Immunization. Got over years, got support from a group of European partners to back it and issued the first ever social impact bond. And that enabled this vaccine alliance to change the way it did contracting, reshape the global supply base for vaccines, invest in country systems, and the results 20 years later are 980 million additional children vaccinated and 16 million additional lives saved. So it can be done. It's astounding. And in this in this first chapter, which is about asking questions, so you have the the Bill Gates question. Uh, I I recall my my co-author of Yes and Tom Yorton. The one thing I loved in meetings, he he would do about halfway through a meeting, go, "What problem are we actually trying to solve?" Because you realize everyone's off on a wild goose chase, not dealing with that. And you talk about Amy Batson, a health specialist at World Bank, and she would ask this question: "What would you do if you had a magic wand?" <laughs> I love that because it kind of forces you to answer. Yeah. I mean, the whole idea was people, I think it's human. Sometimes it's common to explain all the constraints, like here are reasons why you can't do something or here are reasons why yeah. you, 
afford something or hear reasons why this won't work. Like how many people have sat in a meeting on a topic that feels important and heard someone say, well, that's not possible because, and just the way to reframe that, that I learned from Amy and others was, you know, okay, if you had a magic wand and you could imagine any picture of the future you wanted, what would you do with it? And that's when you start getting these creative answers like, oh, we would change the way UNICEF procures vaccines so they could buy huge volumes over long time horizons, have all the money in the world to back up that contract and allow vaccine manufacturers to invest in building more capacity to serve that, you know? Then you get that answer and you're like, okay, let's figure out a financing instrument that that mimics the characteristics that are needed in that story. So it just is a way to get people to ima- describe a future state from a positive perspective as opposed to from the constraints that stand between where we are today and where we want to go. Well, I think, too, because people, you, you know, this is a thing that I, hopefully you learn as you get older. I certainly did. And it's it's evident in our work, which is like we have to reframe continually because – as human beings, we, we like patterns. Uh, we, we tend to go for the easiest thing at times. And when you're improvising to make great comedy, uh, an easy pattern is not going to be interesting or funny. Um, truth is, and to get to truth is, is sometimes requires uh, digging in, in into compl- complex areas. And I remember talking to my friend, um, uh, Linnea Gandhi, who's sort of like Danny Kahneman's chief of staff, and talking about this idea about Danny, which is like he sees the world as a problem. And that, but as a, that's a good thing that, that it's a problem to be solved. It's a game almost for him. And you write in the book, quote, concerns are a roadmap. So I want you to talk a little bit about what you, what you mean when you say that. Well, this was, so when I put the proposal together for that immunization bond, yeah, I, I was granted a meeting with Bill Gates and I walked into his suite at a hotel in New York and sat down and I was, you know, my first one-on-one private serious meeting with Bill uh, there wasn't a kind of group setting and he reaches into his bag and pulls out my memo and it's like covered in red ink. And he's like, this is a terrible idea. I actually used far more colorful language and, and, uh, and walks me through all the different reasons why, in his opinion, you know, this really wasn't going to work. And, and I was, uh, and I was by then used to working in that environment. And so yeah. I knew that it was a discussion and a debate and not, not, he didn't really mean it would never work. What he was really doing was saying, here are all the things you'd have to solve for, for this to work. And what we realized in retrospect is that was sort of the, that list of concerns was sort of a task list for the next mm-hmm. several years to say, okay, if we can solve this problem, uh, then, then, you know, then we've gone to the next one. And we just went through that list and started kind of finding people and solutions to those different concerns. And, you know, there were many of them were totally spot on, uh, but that didn't mean we couldn't come up with a way to solve for it. And so once we solved for enough of it, partners started to come on board and we built some momentum and, and were able to execute the project. Um, you, uh, you joined USAID in, in uh, the Obama uh, White House. Can you talk a little bit about what, what that is? Uh, and, and sure. Well, well, USAID is the, is the U.S. Agency for International Development. It is America's uh, agency that engages in development and humanitarian affairs on behalf of the American people all around the world. It is active in 70 or 75 countries around the world, and, and the agency does everything from 
supporting health and well-being to expanding access to girls for education to mm-hmm. um, investing in anti-corruption efforts with governments that are inclined to reduce corruption to promoting democratic processes and running and supporting and monitoring elections and uh, that entity had over history been credited with turning you know south korea after the war into a modern economy um, and the benefit of south korea being a modern economy of course is we have more jobs trading with south korea than we do trading with france and so so it's good for us in in many ways in terms of national security and, and economics but it's also good for us because it's a pure platform for america's moral values i mean USAID, if it stands for any one thing, it's the idea that a child starving in the corner of the globe somewhere is not experiencing the basic dignity that we enshrined in our own Bill of Rights, in our own constitution, and it's in our values to do something for that child. And it's a pretty special place. Well, and you got there in 2010. And was it just a few weeks later that the earthquake happened in Haiti? Yeah, it was about after, uh, about a week Damn. after official swearing in, and uh, and the earthquake happened, and it, the earthquake oh was God. devastating, devastating. Yes. Yeah. So, so like, how do you put yourself in in that mindset of like, okay, weekend now this and and for anyone who who wasn't around or be like, remember this this is with a devastating. Um, earthquake in, in a place that is already has its fair share of, of difficulties. Um, and this required a gargantuan effort, right? On, on the behalf of, and, and one that's extended beyond just government, I imagine. Oh, but much beyond government. I mean, you know, in the moment that it happened, President Obama reached out and called me within within a few um, a few minutes actually and said um, it was my first call from a president of the united states i'd never had that experience before Uh, we were using blackberries at the time so i was intent on not dropping the call (laughs) and uh and he said raj look i'm going to ask you to be to i'm putting you in charge of of our uh, civil and military whole of government response and this is a really tragic disaster just two hours from our shores and hundreds of thousands of people are are at risk of dying here, and we want to do everything we can to make a difference. And so I said, uh, yes, sir, to thinking that the conversation would go on, and the phone, of course, went silent. <laughs> and I looked at my BlackBerry, and I was like, did I drop the call? Thankfully, I didn't. Uh, but then President Obama was on CNN like 30 seconds later, and he said, I just spoke to Administrator Sean. I've directed him to do this, 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 and this. And, and now it's really okay. <laughs> those are the instructions. This, this is game on. But, but it was a really special moment because, you know, it was both a responsibility and an opportunity to show the world what American foreign policy and power could do that was morally right in that moment. And um, I'm very proud of the way our teams, our our U.S. military teams and partners, and the 40-plus other countries around the world that contributed, performed in that moment of great need. Um, This chapter is entitled Open the Turnstiles, and in a moment I'd love you to tell us why. Um, But I really connected to that this concept and and the story that you're going to tell. I remember my wife and I were sitting in our back garden with our friend Ai-Jen Poo, um, and you probably know I, Jen, and I'm a big fan. I'm a big oh, fan. The ba- like the best yeah. human ever. And, and just a joy. 
and we were talking when our when our daughter uh, was at Lurie Children's Hospital. She was diagnosed with cancer, and one of the things that we we ended up writing this op ed with with iGen um, about the fact. So the elevators at, at Lurie Children's Hospital here in Chicago they close real fast. And one of the things that we noticed is every day, every night, you know, and people from in Hajib, uh, people who just spoke Spanish, everyone held the elevator. It did not matter. And it was this and this is this was all going on when there was crisis and, you know, immigrant crisis in the country. There still is all that. And what we were just sort of saying is like, look, all these people, all they care about is that we can save each other's kids. That's all we care about. And we're all going to do it together. And there was just like, it was just this automatic, you know, the handout. And, and your turnstile story, too, is also this idea. I, I, I so sometimes it's these little things, these little things that, that uh, become metaphors um, that maybe will allow us to work more successfully together because that's not always easy for humans. Well, Kelly, I would, first, I, I just um, I'm sorry you went through that with, with your daughter and uh, prayers for you and your family. And I, I would say. Uh, that story of sticking your hand out in the elevator is one of the reasons we should be optimistic. You know, it just speaks to the human character and it is universal. Yeah. And my experience of that uh, was around the Haiti earthquake response. Like in a moment when hundreds of thousands of people were, were dying, uh, 21 out of 22 government ministries had collapsed. The United Nations on the ground in Port-au-Prince had been devastated uh, with with significant deaths of friends and first responders, it, uh, th- I saw people rise up from around the world in the USAID staff. They, they would call me. They say, "You just got to your job. You've never met me. You don't know me, but I know how to help in this moment." And I'm on a plane. I'm coming to DC. I'm going to make a difference. And people did that from Afghanistan and Peru and uh, all over the con- all over the world. And then our military uh, leaders did the same. They said, Raj, look, you're in charge here. What do you need? Anything you need, we're going to, we're going to stand up and provide. So we needed C-130 aircraft carriers to carry a large number of urban search and rescue personnel so they could start salvaging people from the rubble. And they, we launched and mounted the most productive search and rescue operation in, in response, humanitarian response history. Thanks to that effort, we we had the ability to distribute food and water to more than three million people in need. We put up lighting in slums mm-hmm. that and destroyed because in the dark, uh, girls are attacked and and women are unsafe and it's difficult. And so uh, so we did what we could. Couldn't do everything, but I'm proud of the way we responded. And the theme of open the turnstiles was we had this big, messy, multi agency t- team. And what happened is you couldn't go into the USAID building because of all the federal security very easily. So if you had a USAID badge, you would just swipe and you'd go right through. But if you were a military personnel or you were with FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, or with HHS or any of the other agencies, you would kind of stand in line to get a visitor badge. And I basically uh, asked the security team what we could do. And they said, you know, this is a crisis. Let's just keep the turnstiles open. Mm-hmm. And it just changed the way people felt. It made everybody right. feel like, hey, we are all part of this team. And oh, by the way, this is an emer- This is a special moment. This is an emergency. This is a moral moment. And we're going to do our best. And uh, I've never been more proud 
than uh, when we had that team, you know, in the middle of the night, just doing extraordinary things for people in Haiti. Well, and, and you talk in the book, too, about the, the need for these diverse teams to exist. And there's so much science around why that is, is right. And we certainly know it here. An analogy I use a lot of times in my talks is like, you're not going to, you know, put a baseball team with all sluggers. You know, it's like, it's just not, it's not a good idea. Uh, and you got a fast guy up, up top, get that slugger in the third or fourth slot, what, whatever. You want all those different people. And, and the, the need for all these people to know they belong uh, requires you to really be intentional about what belonging cues you're sending out into the universe. Um, and so the, this, this idea of like opening the door, right. It, it, the turnstile, whatever is, is big. Um, and, uh, uh, and you also talk too about the need to over communicate. And I imagine that for some people like, uh, it means talking more. And I, I don't think you mean talking more. I think you probably mean listening more. Yeah. Yeah, I think over-communicate is really about, uh, especially in a big, complex, multifaceted environment like a Haiti earthquake or any emergency response. You know, you don't always uh, know everyone you're working with. You don't always know what the facts are on the ground. Others have famously called it the fog of war. Uh, It's a similar kind of reality. And so what I found is you just have to be uh, really consistent in your approach to communication. So, you know, we had our goal. It was a, it was a swift, aggressive and coordinated response. We had a scorecard with our metrics around food, water, essential services, uh, medical, uh, surgeries performed, and we had our resources. And, and that included things like the, the comfort hospital ship that performed 22,000 surgeries in an unbelievable moment of heroism in that context. And, and we just kept coming back to the same basic points. Here's the goal. Here's the data on performance. Here are the resources that are available. And it would change every day, but the structure was exactly the same because we needed everyone to be on the same page. What are we trying to do? How are we measuring success? What are the resources we're applying to the problem? And, and I found that leadership requires that level of communication and it felt so i I call it over communication because my kids would start joking around with me about how many and my wife about how many times i said swift aggressive and coordinated they were like let me guess swift aggressive and coordinated response but it it, nothing like being brought to the ground by exactly (laughs) exactly just imagine writing the book yes and and then saying no to your kids it does not go well and i deserve it and we all deserve it. So you would you would think like you've, <laughs> you've tackled some stuff, but then in 2014, um, oh, there's the Ebola outbreak. So you had to deal with that too. Yeah, Ebola was extraordinary because you know uh, people now everybody knows about what a pandemic is because we've all been through. Yeah. So, um, but at the time uh, that wasn't quite the case. The Ebola is a hemorrhagic fever, which means uh, when you die, you die by bleeding internally and externally. And it can be very dramatic and uh, horrific. And so people were dying in the streets in Liberia, in Guinea, and in Sierra Leone, three West African countries. And as we were tracking this and trying to respond to it, a lot of healthcare workers, especially in Liberia, were dying because they were treating these folks and trying to save lives. And so 
the situation by August of 2014 was out of control. The CDC was estimating there could be as many as 1.6 million cases, including in the United States at scale. And we, the president made, President Obama made a big bet and said, look, right now, humanitarians, medical responders, no one can go in because it's unsafe. And yet, if we don't go in, we will deal with this on our own shores. And so he deployed the U.S. military for the first time to fight a pandemic. And never been, never, that's never happened before? It never happened before in that context. And we had very clear differentiated responsibilities for different parts of the service. And, and obviously, the humanitarian partners went in alongside. But we built field hospitals to make sure that if service workers got sick, they would be taken care of. We created enough safety in terms of medical protective equipment and the like for for medical groups and humanitarian groups to go back in and start a really aggressive response. We built out a data architecture so that, I mean, by data, we put bioterror labs in different rural communities so we could get the diagnostic validation done in hours instead of days, which is really everything. If you don't know where the positive cases are, you can't do much. And we started experimenting with solutions that might work because we didn't know what would work. And uh, once we had the data system in place, we could try different things and see what was working. It turns out there's a group called Global Communities that worked with these local communities and came up with the solution, uh, which was these sort of WHO designed burial teams that would help remove the bodies of the deceased before uh, the families would wash and kiss and redress uh, those who had been deceased because that was the culture. And that was how you yeah. showed respect to mm-hmm. an elderly member of the family who died. And so uh, by removing the bodies and celebrating those individuals in a different but safe way, uh, we were able to reduce transmission by more than 70%. And at the end of the day, 30,000 cases uh, Ebola was effectively ended in that region without spreading further. But that that's a big bet that worked. And it, 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 and it took a lot of courage at the time to do. It was an election year. There was a lot of politics around it. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, and thankfully, not one single American service personnel got sick. And how many cases ended up coming to the States? Not that many. Uh, there were one or two, and they were they they came positive, so they were not. Um, they were, we don't think there was transmission inside the United States. Wow. All right. So in T minus uh, an hour and fifteen minutes, I'm getting my booster. <laughs> so oh, good for you. <laughs> heading, heading, to, heading to Walgreens. Gotta love my booster. Yeah. Uh, so you were at Rockefeller by the time COVID hit, right? Uh, I was absolutely. Yeah. So. Now, and, and, and I mean, I, 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 I don't know what Rockefeller's, you know, um, motto is or credo, but it's it certainly wasn't to battle um, a, a disease like this. But you guys did jump in to, to, to help. Well, we did. We did. In fact, historically, the foundation was created to bring science and innovation to those areas of humanity where it could have the greatest impact. And oh, so, so, yeah. So, 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 yeah. 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 110 right, so, years yeah. ago. The answer was, well, gosh, this medicine field really should be more science-based. And so we have a long history of of working in public health and dealing with public health emergencies. Um, So we, but, but we had to pivot our current work. Right. In fact, the chapter is called pivot uh, because we had to really change what we were doing across the board um, quickly to focus on fighting COVID in a place we never thought our help would be needed 
the United States. Right. And so, and, 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 uh, I mean, you're, you're battling misinformation. Um, I don't like how, how is I, I don't even recall that. Well, no, at the beginning, the data wasn't great either. Right. Cause we had the, Trump no, so it, well, I mean, that's a great, that's a great point because when you, when you, especially at a foundation, you have to, to make big bets, you have to kind of pick which solutions or innovations you right. think you can focus on and, and use to deliver a solution that scales. And we were looking at the problem in February, March of 2020. And basically America was doing almost no testing. No, no. We had PCR tests that were sort of available. It would take four to seven days to get a result. So there was no visibility. We had said no to the South Korean test. We had said no to the German test. And then the CDC test, we learned many, many, many months later, wasn't going to come online fast because there was a faulty reagent that had been to labs. So America had no real testing infrastructure and without data on who's positive, a lesson learned in Ebola, you're simply going to be locked down forever. So, so we, uh, we quickly mobilized scientists, industry leaders, local mayors and their health departments uh, and governors. And we said, we need a national strategy on testing. And we developed a strategy called the one, three, 30 plan to get to 1 million, then 3 million and 30 million tests a week. We advocated for the antigen rapid test as a not perfect, but better than nothing. And most importantly, fast and frequent and cheap kind of test. And uh, over the course of six months, we were able to build a testing infrastructure around rapid testing for America, holding hands with uh, the Trump administration's uh, health department and probably 20 municipalities around the country and nearly uh, two dozen states led by governor Larry Hogan of the, of the uh, national governors association. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 I, I think too, in this time period, cause you talk in the book about, you know, you're suddenly working from home. You've got your, your kids. Uh, my son often says he gra- graduated zoom laude from college. <laughs> I mean, he's lucky in the sense that he was at the end, right? So he yeah. only had a few months that he had to finish up college. He's, he'd already been in his last play and, and done everything else, but it was just like, like, what is, what is going to happen now? And then, and then suddenly, at least for us at, at second city, our, our pivot was like, well, we're going to do everything on zoom. And so we're doing classes on zoom. We're doing keynote presentations on zoom. We're suddenly doing shows on zoom, you know, not, not the, the greatest thing in the world, but it, it, it carried us until we could sort of uh, reopen. And I imagine too, for at a place like Rockefeller, you're kind of steering a cruise ship, right? It's not, you can't make a sudden turn. So this pivot, when you're talking about a pivot, it's an arc. It strikes me. Yeah. And the team had to be agile and to, uh, you know, to the credit of my colleagues, they came together and said, look, we will pull our grantees together. We'll tell them we're going to do something different yep. we'll move resources into where we think it has the most impact. And we'll build this sort of public private partnership with government to get, to get to scale. And those are the elements of a big bet, you know, focusing on a set of solutions you think can make a difference. In this case, it was the antigen test building unlikely partnerships. I mean, we, we not only do we work with Republican and Democratic governors, but we, we, uh, we actually ha- held hands quite closely with the Trump administration that was saying, look, uh, President Trump at the time was saying that they didn't want testing because it would identify more cases. Right. Right, exactly. And, uh, but even then we were able to work with his team 
to do some of the right things that expanded access to this testing infrastructure. And then we worked with uh, dozens of local partners from Navajo Nation to uh, the city of New Orleans to the Detroit police force to figure out examples of how you could deploy antigen testing mm. in practical ways to get people back on the job safely and yeah. and back into schools safely. And uh, and that kind of partnership backed by real data and analysis is is critical to success. Uh, we're writing we're writing a new show right now in one of our theaters downstairs and i was at previews a cu- couple weeks ago and it, we we test out we experiment in front of audiences that's how we create our work and there was a song in the show and it's going for about a minute and it's not getting i'm like this isn't funny what's going on and suddenly the actor just his next line is and there could be covid in the room <laughs> and it's like and suddenly all the audience members are looking at each other he's like that person who you heard coughing it could be covid <laughs> and it's one of those things where y'all let down you know your your guard a little bit and you realize well no this this is with us and it is going it's not going away i mean this is you know well, it's it's both not going away and i would just point out you know part of why i said we never expected to work on covid so aggressively in the united states is before covid hit um, there have been all these analyses of which countries are most prepared for a, a large-scale pandemic. Yeah. America was always number one on the list, always. Mm-hmm. And so we thought we'd be the most prepared country. And I write about write about this in the book. In fact, uh, we experienced the most excess mortality of any country. I think with 4% of the world's population, we had 16% of the total deaths. And yeah. the reason, of course, was... Uh, a real lack of basic public health infrastructure, a huge, huge lack of testing early in yeah. the pandemic that allowed it to explode, the misinformation and the impact that that caused on on access to services. And ultimately, the real reason is so many Americans had preconditions, uh, yeah. including diabetes and heart disease, that made us quite vulnerable and people didn't know it at the time. So uh, it was really a wake-up call to our country uh, to to do better in our public health approach. Yeah, well, the, the fingers crossed that we are are able to continue to <laughs> take that approach. All right, we always end the podcast by asking our guest for a yes and story. And even before we taped, I'm like, this book is a yes and. Every single thing is a yes <laughs> and. So I, I this is a little bit of a softball, I think, for you. But I'm curious when you think about this, what what's your yes and story for us? Uh, well, my yes and story is. When I was, when the president called me to ask me to lead the Haiti earthquake response, uh, of course the answer was yes. <laughs> right. Uh, right. There, no hesitation. No, no, yeah. There, no would not have gone over well. No, no is not an option. Nope. Uh, and the next morning when I went in for a briefing in the Oval Office, one of my first actual kind of work meetings in the Oval Office with, uh, I got there a little early because, you know, you sure as hell don't want to be late. Nope. And uh, and President Obama and, and Vice President Biden were kind of over on the other side of the room talking. And as I walked in, I could hear uh, Vice President Biden say to President Obama, uh, are you sure about this Raj Shah guy? You know, he's, he's, he's brand new. And we have other more seasoned leaders in the system that we could lean on. And, and before he could respond, uh, Ob- uh, Obama saw me walk in. Yeah. And so he walked over and he's like, Raj, come sit down. And. Uh, it's one of many moments of imposter syndrome that I try sure. to reflect on in the book, because I think for people who might be listening, you just never know what where life is going to take you. And, you know, one thing I've learned being around a lot of 
extraordinary leaders, many of whom are household names, is it's kind of new to everybody. Yeah. We're all just trying to figure it out. And I hope this book is a is a playbook that gives young people in particular some extra tools and some extra confidence to think that if they want to make a difference with their lives and their careers, uh, there's a path to doing so. And, you know, they can actually get it done. That's great. I, I was literally in D.C. a couple of days ago doing a keynote, and uh, they wanted me to talk a little bit about leadership and imposter syndrome. And the story I tell is I, I, I became friends with... Um, uh, Renee Fleming, the opera diva, and we helped, we created a show called The Second City Guide to Opera. It was a big hit, whatever, and, and Renee's the best. And, um, she sang the, uh, the national anthem at the Super Bowl one year. So I texted her after she was done. I'm like, you're awesome. Great job. And then she, she immediately calls me and said, I was terrible. And I'm like, no, you weren't. Why are you calling me about this? And it was just, and, and so like, the greatest opera singer in the world can can think she's horrible when she's not. And my friends Tina Fey and Stephen Colbert, who seem so incredible and together, and, and they are for the most part, but they also are riddled with self-doubt. This yeah. is not and, – and my whole big thing is if you find someone who isn't uh, <laughs> doubtful about stuff, I might – sidestep that human <laughs> run the other way run the other way <laughs> uh the book is called big bets how large-scale change really happens rod Shaw, thank you for coming on the show kelly thank you for having me getting the SN is produced by second city works and wgn radio our editor is ben anderson from wgn and we get support at the second city from colleen fahey mike farinaccio and emma smith the music you hear at the beginning and end of the show is by Jukebox the Ghost. For more information about The Second City, you can go to www.secondcity.com or you can email us directly at works at secondcity.com.
Survive From the dungeon No one will survive